and growing pains in Langley. If the province is going to consistently be behind by four or five schools, then we're going to have to look at slowing down the pace of creation. How demand for development is putting a lot of pressure on local infrastructure. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A BC woman who went to Syria and allegedly sympathized with the terror group ISIS has been declared an ongoing danger to the community. Kimberly Pullman is not facing any criminal charges and she's claimed she's an innocent victim. But a police report obtained by Global News is challenging that claim. Jeff Semple reports. The so-called Islamic State released this video back in 2018, highlighting the role of women. The Khatiba Nasaiba was an all-female ISIS battalion. The RCMP alleges its members included this Canadian, Kimberly Pullman, now living in BC's Fraser Valley. Kimberly, anything you want to say? Pullman, who appeared in court Tuesday, isn't facing any criminal charges, and the RCMP allegations have not been proven. But this 122-page police report, just unsealed and obtained by Global News, outlines the RCMP's investigation, called Project Stiletto. Based on the allegations, she did play um, an active role with ISIS. This national security law expert traveled to Syria with Global News in 2019 and interviewed Pullman after her arrest. I mean, my story, I think he's a little bit unique. She claimed she was an innocent victim who realized her mistake soon after arriving in Syria in 2015. I've been trying to get out since about maybe two weeks after I arrived. Out of Syria. Yeah, yeah. But the police report says Pullman's own children described her as a pathological liar. The report alleges Pullman was trained to fight, that she helped move weapons and treated injured ISIS fighters. Police say a fellow Canadian ISIS member told them that Pullman belonged to a group nicknamed the Sexy Seniors. The older women were dedicated to the cause and did many jobs for ISIS because they did not have young families to care for, the report says. There is a really powerful stereotype about women not being involved in violence and political violence. And to a certain extent, the women of the Islamic State have benefited from that stereotype. Pullman is one of nine women Global Affairs helped repatriate from Syria this year. But according to police, her children urged caution. Police say Pullman's daughter told them, My mom abandoned me to join a terrorist organization. We aren't sure if she should really come back because she might try to blow us all up. Pullman was released on a peace bond, which includes restrictions on driving, travel, and internet use. It expires after eight months. No charges have been laid. Jeff Semple, Global News. And our Alyssa Tebow was also in the courtroom today and joins us now with more on the strict conditions that Pullman is going to have to follow. Alyssa. Well, Chris, probably the biggest change is that she can now have access to a smartphone and she can also access the internet. These are two things that she has not been able to do for more than a year under her bail conditions. Now, her internet use will be strictly monitored. She'll only be able to access certain websites. A probation officer will strictly monitor her online activity and it will also be tracked by an app. She cannot use any social media platforms and she cannot make any calls outside of Canada. Today, the judge also upheld 
some of her previous conditions, including that she must live under a curfew. She will continue to have electronic monitoring. Polman cannot use a motor vehicle because the judge believes that she is at risk of harming people, though she can use an e-bike and she cannot access any weapons. Now, these conditions have been imposed under what's called a terrorism peace bond. And we spoke with a criminal lawyer today about just how seldom this section of Canada's criminal code is used. It's preventative. It's very rarely used. There's only one reported decision. You need to have uh, evidence of a serious and imminent danger. The evidence must be reliable and trustworthy. And uh, because there's a lifelong stigma associated with the section, it, is, it should not be lightly used. And Alyssa, what do we know about where Pullman is living now and why she didn't want that made public? Yeah, Chris, she has changed her address in the past year. Her family actually applied for a publication ban on that address. They tried to argue that if the Islamic State knew where she was, they would try to harm her. They said she has been labelled an enemy of Islamic State. Well, the judge did not buy that. She said that if that were true, that would have already happened, and there is no evidence to suggest that. So we can tell you tonight that Pullman is now living in Squamish at her brother's property, and that is where she will be reporting to her her probation officer, Chris. All right. That's Alyssa Tebow reporting from Chilliwack tonight. Thanks, Alyssa. Now a heartbreaking situation unfolding in the Fraser Valley where a foster family is appealing to keep or appealing to their MLA to help keep their family together. The father has received a terminal diagnosis and according to policy, the 14-year-old girl in their care must be removed from the home. Richard Zussman reports. It's a plea to take action in a desperate situation. Abbotsford West MLA Mike DeYoung telling the story in the legislature Tuesday about a family who recently contacted them. They are long-standing foster parents and are being told that the 14-year-old in their care will be removed from their home even though it's the only place she's ever felt safe and loved. A different form of tragedy has followed her and her, <coughs> her foster dad has uh, been diagnosed with cancer and the prognosis isn't good. The current policy is anyone with a terminal illness diagnosis cannot be a foster parent even though teachers and care workers would like to see the 14 year old remain in the home. Minister Mitzi Dean says she can't intervene specifically in situations like this. I need her to intervene. <laughs> The 14-year-old needs the minister to intervene. All children and youth are kept safely and are be able to be are supported in order for them to thrive. Dean describing the situation as serious and acknowledging the concerns of DeYoung says the one thing she can do is reach out to the provincial director of welfare services and ultimately it will be up to them in terms of whether they can intervene in this situation. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. A foreign student who killed two UBC students in a 2021 crash has been sent to prison. As Grace Key reports, despite the jail time, the mother of one of his victims is not happy with the outcome. 
Tim Gurner took his last steps as a free man as he entered a Richmond courtroom, his mother carrying his items for prison. He was sentenced to three years behind bars and a five-year driving prohibition after a joint submission. Last month, he pled guilty to dangerous driving causing death after killing 18-year-old Emily Selwood and Evan Smith. After Tim Gurner's sentence is complete and he gets on with his life, my beautiful son Evan Smith will still be dead. That is our life sentence. Gurner was 21 years old when he was speeding and lost control of his BMW at UBC two years ago. He hit and killed Emily and Evan while they were walking near the residences. He was originally charged with impaired driving, causing death. The absence of the two alcohol-related charges speaks volumes to me, and it should to you too. In particular, I'm upset that the charge of driving with a blood alcohol concentration over 0.08 causing death was dropped. In an agreed statement of facts, we heard how Gurner had been at a party and was drinking. How much he was drinking was not in the statement. After the collision, he tried to hold Emily's hand and comfort her. I believe Tim Gurner should have pleaded guilty to that charge because that is the right thing to do. Any apology outside of that is merely lip service. I feel the criminal legal system, as it is, skews too heavily towards the rights of the accused, leaving the victims in the dust. The judge saying the facts of this case are truly devastating and tragic. Lies were needlessly taken that early morning. Addressing Gurner, the judge said, you can play a role in making sure no family suffers like the Selwood and Smith families. This can be your role in giving back to society. As Gurner was handcuffed and led away, his mother burst out in tears. The judge acknowledged three UBC students with bright, promising futures, two now gone and another changed forever. Gurner is an Australian and German national and will eventually be deported. Grace Key, Global News. Highway 3, just west of Caramillos, has reopened to single-lane traffic in each direction after a rock slide shut it down. But while the road is partially open, crews are still working to clear large boulders that came down Sunday night. They also still have a lot of work to do to restore power and phone services to the nearby residents. Langley is one of the fastest-growing communities in Canada, and with SkyTrain expansion now on track, even more people will be attracted to the area. But critics are warning the rapid pace of development in Langley Township is outpacing the construction of schools, parks, and other vital community infrastructure. Janet Brown has the story. Construction in Langley Township is booming, and particularly in the Willoughby area. We're seeing so much growth in Willoughby that we want to make sure that we're doing it in the right way. The mayor says the township is working to improve recreational facilities to match the growth, like here at the Langley Events Centre. Three new ice sheets and two new year-round drive floors and with underground parking. But it is taking longer for other infrastructure like schools to catch up with the growth. We may have to slow down growth in other areas because the province hasn't kept up with schools. And so if we're expected to produce more housing, it's really incumbent upon the province to do their part as well. This is a proposed elementary school site behind me in the Latimer Heights area of Willoughby. Construction is slated to begin in the spring of next year and opening is set for the fall in 2025. But the mayor says it is still not enough. The township is short three to four elementary schools, one middle school and a high school. Since October of last year, 6,000 new housing units have been approved, mainly located along 200th Street. 
TransLink's 10-year plan includes a bus rapid transit line with dedicated bus lanes running along 200th from the planned SkyTrain station in Willowbrook north to the Golden Ears Bridge. If we put the right density in the right areas in the right ways, hopefully that would support additional investment. When you look at the traffic right now, it's just incredibly busy highway. James Hansen with Strong Towns Langley, a group that promotes more people-oriented communities, says while he supports construction of new homes, he would like to see more walkable neighborhoods. If we're going to start building housing along it, I think as well as the bus rapid transit, it needs to change. It needs to become more uh, human scale, pedestrian oriented. The township is asking residents to weigh in with their thoughts on the future of 200th through an online survey. Janet Brown, Global News. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry now to talk more about new legislation the province is introducing to fast track the construction of new homes. Keith? Yeah, the housing legislation keeps coming. This is Bill 46, the Housing Statutes Development Financing Act. Basically allows a new tool for municipalities to collect charges to relate to payment for infrastructure and such. And here's some of the details. There's a new category now, what's going to be called the uh, Amenity Cost Charge, or ACC. That's going to pay for housing infrastructure costs and needs. They have to be paid and determine how big they are at the start of construction rather than as the construction continues. And also, current development cost charges are going to be expanded to cover such things as fire halls, police stations, and highway exits and interchanges. The Housing Minister Ravi Kailan today said the point of all this is to bring certainty and transparency to a, a, a issue that can take months, if not years, to unfold when it comes to building new housing. Here's the minister. We understand local governments need money for infrastructure. What we're saying with this legislation is this new tool allows for that to be done in a transparent way in the front end so they can get the dollars they need for that infrastructure. And it takes away the negotiating that takes often uh, sometimes years to get housing built. Now, the legislation parade continues tomorrow. Another housing bill will be introduced in the House. This one will deal with attracting more housing around rapid transit stations, uh, bus interchanges, and community amenities. That's coming tomorrow afternoon. Well, housing is a hot topic in BC, that's for sure. Yeah. Thank you, Keith. A rally today at the Vancouver Courthouse on that topic to show support for the city's SRO vacancy control policy. SRO needs rent control. SRO tenants and supporters gathered on the steps of the B.C. Court of Appeal. Last August, the B.C. Supreme Court struck down Vancouver's bylaw, which limited rent increases between tenancies at SROs in the city's downtown core. Those at the rally say if the bylaw isn't reinstated, the consequences will be dire for those who rely on this form of low-income housing. If you think homelessness is bad right now in Vancouver, it's going to get way worse because there's about 4,000 tenants living in these hotels that will be affected. I know the laws, but a lot of tenants don't, aren't as aware as I am of that, and, and people are afraid to lose their housing, so they're easily intimidated by landlords. Arguments in favor and against reinstating the bylaw were heard in court today with the SRO Collaborative expecting a decision to be made in the new year. 
At one time, it was the most valuable startup in the United States. But today, a spectacular fall for WeWork. The once booming office space company has filed for bankruptcy as more and more people choose to work from home. What it means for the future of Canada's workforce, next on the News Hour. There's not that many people that do professional skiing and mountain biking at the highest level. An athlete from Whistler, among the best in the world at both sports, and how his BC upbringing helps later on the news hour. And coming up in sports, the Whitecaps' gregarious coach forced to apologize for post-game comments about the referee in their season-ending loss. That's still to come. Right now, though, just a few years ago, the company WeWork was expected to revolutionize the concept of office space making it available to almost anyone. But today, WeWork filed for bankruptcy protection, looking to end the leases on three of its Metro Vancouver locations. As Aaron MacArthur reports, that's leaving tenants in limbo. Cool and casual. Definitely not your parents' office environment. WeWork was set to reinvent the cubicle, offering up co-working spaces, to startups and companies that didn't want to be saddled with the burden of leasing. Tuesday, the company once valued at $47 billion filed for bankruptcy. Uh, it's a tremendous story of you know what seemed to be a large success into a failure very, very quickly. WeWork took on millions of square feet of commercial real estate across the globe. One estimate suggests the company has leased or was planning to lease more than 650,000 square feet of office space in Vancouver alone. Court filings indicate WeWork is looking to offload some of those leases in Burnaby and in Vancouver. Tenants wondering what comes next. I'm a little bit worried as a, an office user. Um, it's unfortunate. Obviously, we recognize the landscape for offices right now. Um, I hope we don't lose our space. According to analysts, the company was hammered by the pandemic, the shift to remote work, and rapidly rising interest rates. According to CBRE, office vacancy rates haven't recovered to pre-pandemic levels. In Vancouver, in Q3, there was a vacancy rate of 11.8%, seven points lower than the national average. But with fewer people going into the office, the business model no longer worked. And so you had a lot of leverage on a company uh, that really hadn't proven that this business model could work. When those two things uh, collided, there just really was no chance for this company. The bankruptcy will affect operations of the company in the U.S. and in Canada, but according to regulators, not the overseas markets. And despite what the company calls a setback, executives still believe there is value in what WeWork offers. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Just ahead, he's accused of murder in the death of a young teenage girl. But today, startling developments in the trial of Ibrahim Ali. What happened in court next? And people still asking, where is Randall Hopley? The latest on the search for the convicted child predator who cut off his ankle monitor and disappeared. Traffic is steady in both directions over here tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge, but there's still plenty of leftover volume in both directions on the east-west connector through Richmond. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $18 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Yet another twist today in the trial of Ibrahim Ali, accused of killing a Burnaby teenager. The judge has thrown out the testimony of a Crown witness. Rumina Dea reports. 
the judge instructing the jury to disregard the incomplete evidence of Dr. Tracy Pickett as if she never testified. Why Pickett's death wounding the right of the accused to full answer and defense, which includes the right to challenge a witness on their credibility, reliability and impartiality. The cross-examination of Dr. Pickett was significantly curtailed by her unexpected death, said Justice Bernard. Therefore, to preserve the fairness of the trial, I am instructing you to completely disregard Dr. Pickett's evidence in its entirety. Dr. Pickett, a sexual assault expert called by Crown, had been on the stand for five days. She was in the middle of cross-examination when she didn't show up for court the morning of September 28th. Vancouver police launched a massive search for Pickett after her family reported her missing. Her body was found near her home the same day. The judge previously told the jury no foul play was suspected. You must resist all speculation, inquiry and research into Dr. Pickett's death, said the judge. Finally, it is essential to the fairness of this trial and to your impartiality as jurors that you not attribute blame in any sense whatsoever to the accused for Dr. Pickett's death. Crown's theory, the young teen was dragged off a trail in Burnaby Central Park, sexually assaulted and strangled by a stranger more than six years ago. Ibrahim Ali's DNA found inside the girl, said Crown. The teen's underwear and shorts never tested for DNA. The evidence circumstantial, no witnesses. Ali has pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder. Defense has yet to open its case. On Tuesday afternoon, the jury started hearing from RCMP Sergeant Mike Lim, the exhibits officer who observed the teen's partially nude body on the forest floor. His testimony continues Wednesday. Romina Dea, Global News. There is still no sign of high-risk sex offender Randall Hopley wanted on a Canada-wide arrest warrant. Police say he deliberately removed his ankle bracelet just days before he was due to make an appearance in court. Catherine Urquhart takes a look at how easy it is to remove the surveillance device. Removing an electronic monitoring bracelet is typically not that difficult. And it happens. Certainly from time to time, uh, and there's cases that have been in the public realm where anchor bracelets have been removed, yes. Convicted sex offender Randall Hopley walked away from his halfway house in Vancouver's downtown east side on Saturday and removed his ankle bracelet. He's wanted on a Canada-wide warrant. He just walked out. I guess he signed out saying he was going to a thrift store and uh, never returned. Vancouver police say they're deploying extra resources to find him. On the street... And we're also working behind the scenes and conducting a number of investigative steps uh, behind the scenes, some of which I can't talk about because they, they may be covert in nature. Vancouver police say Hopley was given an ankle monitor earlier this year by Correctional Services Canada, who say it is important to note that electronic monitoring is not a standalone tool intended to replace traditional means of supervising offenders on release. Rather, it is an additional tool available to community parole officers that works in tandem with other offenders' community supervision strategies and keep our communities safe. Randall Hopley, just the latest convict to remove his monitoring bracelet and surely won't be the last. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Just ahead, one year in the mayor's chair. Is there anything you wish you could have done better? 
How Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim answers that and other questions as he vows to bring some swagger back to the city. And still talking about the Burnaby Mountain Gondola, the transportation project that never ever quite gets off the ground. Here we are over at the Massey Tunnel where counterflow is out and traffic is steady in both directions. Keep in mind though, there is overnight road work on the Delta side on Highway 99. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert care for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services. Choose the best. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. It has been one year since Ken Sim was sworn in, becoming the city's first mayor of Chinese descent. That's not the only thing that makes him unique either, with a style that makes it clear he's not like other politicians. Kristen Robinson sat down with the mayor as he reflected on his first year in office. We still have a bit of work to do, but it's a lot better than it was a year ago. One year after he was sworn in as Vancouver's first Chinese-Canadian mayor... Um, Hi, how's it going? Ni hao. Ken Sim is recognized on the streets of Chinatown, where this city office was one of his party's bold campaign promises. On day one, we are going to requisition for 100 new police officers and 100 new mental health nurses. Sim says 104 police officers have been hired, while the mental health nurses' pledge has evolved. When it comes to the mental health workers. As of last month, Vancouver Coastal Health says it's only recruited nine and a half full-time positions now classified as mental health workers. Why a year in are we nowhere near seeing 100 mental health nurses hired and is that a failed promise? At the end of the day, uh, we've made the commitment. Uh, things happen. Um, you know, once again, uh, it's it's up to the health authority. who have been great partners, by the way, uh, to help us. You know, not only define what we need, but to execute on it. Sim says ABC has hit about 40 of 94 commitments, including scrapping the 25 cent disposable cup fee while progress is being made on others, like reducing permit wait times. We've committed to our policy of 3331. Simple renovations, permits in three days, single-family homes uh, in three weeks, uh, three months for low- and mid-rise uh, apartment buildings, and you know one year for substantive projects. Is there anything you wish you could have done better? Yeah, uh, personally, I take responsibility for the property tax increase, how we articulated it, because uh, I was not clear. Sim claims he failed to explain the impact of regional and provincial taxes on the city's 10.7% property tax hike. What that really, really uh, uh, worked out to was uh, 33 cents per day for the average condo owner or 83 cents a day for the average uh, homeowner. Housing affordability and the humanitarian crisis on the downtown east side remain priorities, along with continued support for Chinatown. Well, I'd love to see more people on the streets enjoying the neighborhood. Where Sim says they've committed over $3 million. We're, we're just getting started. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Well, the idea of a gondola up to SFU has been talked about a lot since it was first floated back in 2009. It is now part of TransLink's 10-year vision. And while the Transit Authority is now asking for public input on the plan, as Angela Jung reports, there is still no funding tied to it. TransLink wants you to take a seat. Imagine ascending up Burnaby Mountain in a gondola instead of taking the bus. It seems like it'd be faster than the buses. It's more reliable service, especially in winter. Stop! Stop! 
During a snowstorm, SFU students would get stuck. Which is always a struggle when it gets snowed and because the buses get cancelled. The proposed gondola would take commuters from Production Way University Skytrain Station to SFU Exchange, an estimated seven-minute ride, cutting the travel time by more than half. TransLink is now seeking public input before it can ask the Mayor's Council on Regional Transportation to approve it. We need funding from the provincial and federal government to deliver not only this project but a whole host of projects. The Transit Authority is already facing a $4.7 billion deficit. The chair for the council says the other levels of government need to provide financial support. These are not luxury items. These are not nice-to-haves. These are basic requirements. If we're going to be a functioning region that continues to see significant population growth and has to have options for people to get around. The latest business case pegged the project at $210 million. I don't know. They've been talking about it for a long time now. So I think we're just a bit desensitized to it. The idea of a gondola has been floating around for years now. The earliest story Global News did about this was back in 2009. And so for these students here, they know that if it were ever to take off, it'll be long after they've graduated. For people who are like me, just 10 years younger, like hopefully they won't have to go through the same thing of getting, you know, probably stuck up on campus. Probably not within the time that I'm here, but maybe a long time from now. Until the project is approved and funded, it will remain a pie in the sky. Angela Jung, Global News. Yeah, and just ahead, an extreme athlete who has no off-season. Right when I get back from the last race of biking, I kind of got to think about training for skiing. Whistler's own Wei Tian Ho, who loves going downhill no matter what he's riding. And the First Nations Agreement bringing cool, clean power to BC's Northwest. Northwest First Nations leaders are teaming up to help power BC's growing clean economy. First Nations-led cool power was announced at the First Nations Energy Summit in Vancouver today. The organization plans to develop and operate renewable energy transmission and generation projects in northwestern BC. So far, 11 First Nations leaders have signed on, while discussions are underway with other nations. Governments are facing more pressure these days to tackle climate change. And now a campaign is arguing that B.C. is failing to make meaningful progress in its CO2 reduction goals. But as Kylie Stanton reports, the environment minister is pushing back, saying the province's climate plan is still strong. From fires to floods, extreme cold to extreme heat, B.C. has seen it all in this past year alone. And a new report warns the province is not on track to deal with it. We are in uh, deep doo-doo. The BC Climate Emergency Campaign released its second annual climate action report, outlining the province's progress on 10 urgent actions set out to confront the climate emergency. It shows only minor progress is being made on seven of the actions. The remaining three received a failing grade, meaning no substantive policies or actions have been implemented when it comes to setting binding climate targets based on science, rather
rapidly winding down all fossil fuel production and reporting progress on these actions every year. Incremental change lacks the urgency required to confront the climate emergency. If we do not drive down our greenhouse gas emissions, we will never get ahead of the curve. The campaign, which is made up of more than 550 companies, environmental groups and First Nations, takes particular issue with the government's continued approval of new liquefied natural gas projects and the ongoing permitting of new homes to connect to gas. Climate emergency action means phasing out fossil fuel extraction, not dramatically expanding it. Do we have more to do? Absolutely. BC's environment minister says the government appreciates the work of the campaign, but it remains focused on achieving the goals set out under Clean BC. We're on track. Uh, toward our climate targets on a very multifaceted plan that's one of the leading plans in North America, whether it's transportation, whether it's home heating, whether it's industrial decarbonization, or our recently announced new energy action framework, which includes uh, really focusing on electrification as well as driving down uh, emissions in the oil and gas sector by a minimum of 33% by 2030. Still, advocates say every passing year is a passing opportunity to take bold action and time is not on our side. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Weather, of course, is tied into climate, and we've got a lot of rain on the way over the next little while. That's for sure. Christy's got the details for us now. Absolutely. I mean, we felt, felt the impact of climate change over the last few years, in particular, literally 2021. Today, it uh, didn't feel like climate change today. It felt like beautiful fall-like weather with sunshine, but boy, was it blustery. So we had uh, peak wind gusts up to 67 kilometers an hour. It was a strong northwest flow down the Strait of Georgia, pushing through the English Bay Area. And that's why we saw the waves in through Stanley Park. For example, the winds have begun to die down and we'll continue to see that trend. But we do have a wind warning for the North Coast region. Gusts up to 120 kilometers an hour expected tomorrow afternoon into Thursday morning ahead of this next system that's going to drive on shore. And you'll see that pushing in just through right, right through here. Meanwhile, for our region tomorrow, we're ahead of that system, but we still do have cloud and a chance of showers in the forecast. Some nice breaks of blue sky, though, for those of you in the interior in the afternoon. But here's that next system. It will impact the South Coast area on Thursday, Vancouver Island in the morning, Metro Vancouver in the afternoon. And we'll see windy conditions with that as well. So, you know, those beautiful leaves that you saw in the cloud or in the trees today, I think over the next little while, you'll really start to see them come down, especially with the wind and the rain that's on the way for our Thursday. So tomorrow is a little bit easy cloud and just a chance of showers. We're expecting breaks of blue sky for the Victoria region, but most areas will remain mainly cloudy. And there you go. Thursday, Friday, we're expecting wet weather. But for Thursday, it's more so in the afternoon. Tonight, central windows weather window comes to you from West Vancouver, where Rose Murray was walking along. Yes, enjoying the blue sky, but also the windy conditions and waves. Back to you, too. Saw some wind and waves like that at Kitts Beach. Kitts Dog Beach today, too. Mm -hmm. A little bracing out there in the wind. Thanks, Christy. All right, Squire is here now uh, with a look ahead to sports, and I, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone a little bit. <laughs> it's not a dream. <laughs> We're not in a parallel universe. There's not a man in a high castle with the films of what actually is going on. <laughs> this is real. The Canucks scored six goals last night against Edmonton, but they probably wouldn't have won this game if it wasn't for Thatcher Demko. Yeah, they came out firing, and Demko was obviously all world for us. Yes, he's off to a great start this season, and when he's playing great, it usually means 
great things for Vancouver. Also tonight. So I didn't really have much of a choice. So my parents would just drag me out into the mountains. Starting young is paying off for extreme athlete Wei Tian Ho, a Whistler legend in the making. Take a moment to reflect. BC Remembers, live on Global BC and BC One, Saturday, November 11th from 10.30 a.m. Brought to you by the Royal Canadian Legion. We remember to honour Canada's veterans. Is it too soon to start talking about if the playoffs started today? If you are in a playoff spot on American Thanksgiving in the NHL, mm -hmm. chances are you will still be in that spot in April. I don't know why, that just seems to be the way the math goes. Statistically, it works. Not every team stays, but most do. And who would have thought that by early November, the Vancouver Canucks would be 14 points ahead of Connor McDavid and the Oilers in the standings? Who would have thought that Elias Pettersson would be leading the NHL in scoring after last night's game with 21 points and Quinn Hughes would be right behind him at 20 and JT Miller would have 18? And here's another way to look at it. If the NHL season stopped right now, Pedersen would win the scoring title. Hughes would be voted as top defenseman, and both of those guys would be in the running for MVP. I don't think there's any doubt that Rick Tockett would be coach of the year, and Thatcher Demko would win the Vesna as the best goalie. And he was spectacular again last night in that 6-2 win over Edmonton. Dry settle throws it in. Here's Fogel behind the defense. In on goal. Stop by Last night, the Canucks gave the Oilers' bosses a close-up look at what they need. A goalie who can keep them in a game when things are going against them. Because that's what Thatcher Demko did for the Canucks. Even though Vancouver won by four goals and are leading the NHL in average goals per game at four and a half, every Canuck knows that Demko is still the linchpin. And when he's on his game, Vancouver always has a chance to win. We're playing a little bit better in front of him, and he's still making those big saves, but you're seeing you know, how good he is because he doesn't have to make 40 saves a night, 50 saves a night. The guy's unbelievable. He's uh, playing with so much confidence right now. He's so big in the net, and he really kept the first 10 minutes of that game in check for us and gave us a chance to win. It was about 15 minutes we were under siege. <clears throat> Denver, you know, does Denver things. He was incredible. Then we found our game, so um, that's the way we look at it. You know? So obviously we're pretty happy with, for Demko, what he, what he did for us. That's a new line. Demmer does Demmer things. Okay. There isn't a sports league in the world who likes their referees criticized, even when they deserve to be criticized. Now, they would tolerate you or I complaining about the refs. They can't do anything about that, but they don't like their coaches doing it. And that's why Vanny Sartini is facing an unknown punishment for what he said about referee Tim Ford after Sunday's game against LAFC. Red card for coach. He's on the field. We've all seen an animated Vanny Sartini before, but never like this. Vanny red-carded and sent off in the final minutes of the Caps' 1-0 playoff defeat by LAFC, which entered the Caps' season and will also delay the start of Vanny's 2024 season because the suspension is definitely forthcoming. Sartini and 30,000 Caps supporters beside themselves after watching referee Tim Ford's less-than-acceptable officiating performance. You're right. I was... Uh, very angry in the game when it happened uh, and uh, even if I thought that we were 
basically uh, having an injustice, I didn't my team any favor to get sent off. So, and because uh, even though the game was almost over, it was like one minute, but uh, uh, that will carry automatically a suspension next year and everything. So, you know, we need to uh, work always on ourselves to, uh, um, again, being emotional and being in the moment, it doesn't, doesn't mean losing your head. Giovanni Sartini, absolutely furious. Now it's just a matter of how many games and how long Sartini might be gone for because returning to the pitch after being red carded, a big no-no. Then there's Vanny's honesty and sense of humor, which clearly got the best of him prior to the start of his post-game press conference when Vanny joked about the ref making these comments, which Major League Soccer won't take too kindly to. No, I say like if they found him in, I don't know, in False Creek like this, uh, I'm, the number, I'm, the num I'm the number one, uh, you know, suspect. <laughs> It's like our player on the field. If someone makes a mistake, you need to own it and try to do better the next time. For the record, Sartini's already reached out to the Professional Soccer Referees Association regarding his comments and behaviour. And true to Vanny's form, he's also publicly making this promise. I'm very proud by the fact that I played 100 games, like 99 games, as a head coach of the Y Cups, and for the first 98, I never got a red card. So that's, uh, that's a good statistic, I would say, but uh, I hope that uh, to beat this record, to, to, to go to 200 without a red card so from, from now on. Never a dull moment, and that's what I love about him. Um, okay, White Cats boss Axel Schuster says there will be some play player changes announced at the end of this week, but for the most part, he is happy with the White Cats roster. We all have the feeling that there's not a lot of changes we have to make. Uh, we, we, we have a pretty strong group that um, where all the core pieces, most of the core pieces, almost all core pieces are under contract for next year. Um, the season has proven and the next season will not be very different that a team like us with the amount of travel that we also have, the amount of games that we will have again with Champions League and Canadian Championship and all of that, that we need uh, a huge group of players being ready at any time. And we should say we have no word yet on when the MLS will rule on what Vanny's punishment is. All right. Hope they go light on him. Thanks, Squire. A double threat on the mountains. The Whistler athlete making a name for himself in all seasons. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agency's group. 50 years of trust in your community. Jordan Armstrong joins us from the brand new newsroom cam with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Yes, some new paint in the old newsroom. Chris, Vancouver's Jewish community is marking one month since the attacks by Hamas with a vigil outside the art gallery. It's happening right now and we'll have more at 11. Plus, the father of the boy Randall Hopley, abducted in 2011, says he's incredulous the repeat offender could walk away from a halfway house. Tonight, what he thinks of our justice system and how he found out Hopley was missing. We'll be back tonight at 11. Chris. All right, look forward to that. Thanks very much, Jordan. Well, becoming a world-class skier takes total dedication. The same can be said for mountain biking. Tonight, you'll meet a Whistler athlete who's mastered both. Wei Tian Ho grew up in the mountains and has turned his love of the outdoors into a career as an extreme athlete. Jay Durant shows us more in This is BC. 
Yeah, we are in beautiful Sea to Sky. Not your average playground, but this is where Wei Tian Ho spent a lot of time as a child. My parents would just drag me out into the mountains. It didn't have to be mountain biking or skiing. I knew it was hiking, and I remember as a kid, I, I hated hiking. Oh my God. Well, two out of three did stick, and now the 19-year-old will be competing in this year's free ride world tour. Fresh off his Enduro Mountain Bike World Cup season. Right when I get back from the last race of biking, I kind of got to think about training for skiing. There's not that many people that do professional skiing and mountain biking at the highest level. And I just saw an opportunity there to kind of push myself. And it's surreal. It feels like I'm in a movie. He is. One of the feature athletes in Teton Gravity Research's new release, Legend Has It. Still flying down the mountain like he's done ever since he was a kid. I definitely think if I were to pick up a bike or skis for the first time right now, it would maybe be a little bit more difficult because falling hurts a lot more. I, mean, I know when I was a kid, I would constantly like bite my tongue. I was known for that, uh, cutting my eyes, and I would just keep going at the, I would just wouldn't really think about it. And Ho's not even a hikater anymore. I appreciate views a lot more than when I was young because um, before I just thought, it was stupid. I just felt like it was slow. Like, why would I walk when I could ride? <laughs> I've kind of always envisioned myself being in this place, but I still think there's things that I haven't, that I want to achieve that I haven't yet. I'm proud of where I've gotten to so far. I just don't feel, I guess, content with where I'm at yet. Jay Durant, Global News. Better keep an eye on that guy. Well, if you know someone who has a great story to share, please email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. All right, quick word on the weather before we go, Christy. Sure. Congrats to Wei Chen, by the way. He's a family friend of ours. But uh, nice. tomorrow, cloud and showers. We're back to the old reign of, uh, of our fall-like weather. Okay. Pull out back the umbrellas. To back to normal. Nothing wrong with that. Thanks very much for watching, everyone. Have a great night. Night, all.